I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller. Our healthcare system is complicated and expensive, but sometimes we forget that there are compassionate Americans out there who help us when our health is on the line. My guest on this episode is Mike Trobeck, an urgent care doctor in Albuquerque, New Mexico. What does doing your best every day and showing compassion in a nearly impossible situation look like from his point of view? Mike is going to give us an opportunity to see what it's like to walk a mile in a doctor's shoes. It's difficult when you're an hour and a half behind and you've got two or three sick patients and one waiting for an ambulance and it's it's kind of hard to put that smile on when you walk into the next room when you know it feels like the whole world is going to shit <laughs> right it's it's just difficult sometimes so let's start with your past tell me about your hometown so I grew up in a what used to be a very small town in New Hampshire um, called Derry. And uh, Derry, New Hampshire was actually kind of an idyllic place to grow up. Uh, when I was growing up there, it was probably about uh, 5,000 population. And we were uh, 45 minutes from Boston and 20 minutes from the Atlantic Ocean and about an hour and a half from the White Mountains. So it was actually just a beautiful place to grow up. Did you go through the public school system? So Derry, New Hampshire, when I grew up there, we had public first grade through eighth. And then my high school was originally founded back around 1800. And it was originally an all boys private school and remained uh, what they called a semi-private school. It was a private school, but the, the city paid for us to go because it was the only high school. You know, our, our principal, when I went there, had graduated from Pinkerton like in 1929 or something like that. It was, a, it was a very traditional, a lot of people from my high school went to Ivy League and military academies and those kind of things, prep schools down north of Boston. Tell me about your family. Were you a typical nuclear family unit? Yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, kind of an atypical nuclear family. My, my dad was widowed, and he had two children from his first marriage. So that was my oldest brother and sister, who, when I was born, they were both in high school. So... There was them, and my mom was divorced. She was she was married to the mob. Only, not kidding. <laughs> she really was, uh, and she had to get out of that situation. But she had two uh, children, brother and sister. Uh, you know, my other half brother and half sister. So I was the youngest. What was the faith in your household? Was your family religious? You know, it's another just kind of an interesting story. My dad was a devout Catholic. And when he was widowed and he met my mom and they got married, my mom was divorced. So my dad was never able to take communion again. My mom went to the Episcopal Church 
and for some reason they raised me Catholic, and I'm not really quite sure why, because my mom went to the Episcopal Church on the other side of town, and my dad would come to church, but he could never take communion. Um, and my brothers and sisters, they'd never really attended church. So I was, uh, I had communion and confirmation in the Catholic Church. What part of that experience stuck with you, and what do you feel like you had to leave behind? I think my experience coming out of my time in the Catholic Church led me to be, I think I've always been a very deeply spiritual person, but after coming out of my experience in the Catholic Church, I became a very irreligious person. I'm not a big fan of religion in general. I, I feel that there are many paths to however you want to refer to a God. I don't think anybody has the market on spiritual journey. Um, so I think there are a lot of paths to that divinity. And so it's hard for me to identify with anyone because they all think that they're the one and only. So uh, I'm very tolerant of religion, except when they're not tolerant of others. And I've always I've always just considered to my can consider myself to be just a really spiritual person, but not a religious person. When you were walking across the stage to get your high school diploma, what was going through your mind? Well, you know, it was uh, it was an interesting time experiencing my final days of freedom because I had already enlisted in the Marine Corps. I enlisted in October of my senior year. I did uh, early enlistment, so I graduated in June and I left for boot camp in July. What was the appeal of the Marine Corps for you at that age? I wasn't particular. I think I was bored by school. I did well in school. But I didn't have money to go to college. I knew I wasn't going to get a scholarship for college and didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had um, some friends that were going in the Marine Corps and some friends that were going in other services at the same time. And uh, for some reason, the Marine Corps sounded like an interesting challenge. And uh, my, my mother was heartbroken. I mean, she really wanted to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> every every mother worries to death when their sure. children go in the military, and my mom was no different. So you enlisted in the Marines at the age of 18. Where did the Marines take you in the world? Well, you know, after basic training, I was uh, stationed in California um, at El Toro. And soon after I got to El Toro, um, we deployed on a Westpac on an aircraft carrier to the Persian Gulf. And coincidentally, that was right when the hostage crisis took place back in 1979-1980. So we ended up heading right over to the Middle East and the Persian Gulf during that whole mess. So I was there for a year and came back. I spent some time in uh, Yuma, Arizona, like the second hottest place in the United right, States. On, right, yeah. On, on yes. most days. And um, I finished up my enlistment in Yuma, and then I worked, interestingly, I worked for the Israeli government for a while there um, on aircraft for the Israeli Air Force. And then I met my first wife, Laura, and uh, we left there and moved back east, and that's when I started back in college and went on to medical school. Did you ever consider a military career? No. No. I had too much of an inquiring mind and then the Marine Corps doesn't like people who ask questions. So that was a little, that was a little difficult. It just, it wasn't, it wasn't for me. I, I 
met some wonderful people in the Marine Corps. A lot of them are still very dear friends. We stay in contact and uh, visit, you know, occasionally. Um, great people. Um, it was a great experience. I probably wouldn't have done the things I did in my life if I hadn't done that, but it wasn't a career for me. At what point did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? You know, it was funny. I took Latin in high school because way back then I thought I might want to go into medicine. It was either I either wanted, <laughs> um, either wanted to do medicine or music, and music was too out of my control, and I didn't like that at all. So, you know, to to make a career in music, it has to be a perfect storm, and that was just too unpredictable for me. And uh, I think I realized that after a while. You know, I I enjoy music and I love to play with it, but I don't I don't have that kind of talent. When we talk about experts or expertise, what is it in your mind that really distinguishes a great doctor or healthcare provider? That's a great question because um, it's changed. I've been, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, and I've been practicing medicine for almost 27 years now, and it has changed so much. It used to be that Patients would say, oh, you know, go to see Dr. Smith. They have a terrible bedside manner, but they're a really good doctor. And that was acceptable. Um, People didn't expect their doctors to be warm and fuzzy and communicative. But now it's very different. Patients, they expect you to be accessible. They expect you to be communicative and kind and personable and have a good bedside manner. And they also expect you to be good at what you do. The expectations have changed now, you know, now it's almost like Yelp. We get, uh, we get, we get reviews and uh, we get press gainy scores on, you know, our customer satisfaction. And in my opinion, the two hardest and in some ways worst things that happened to medicine is medicine became big business, which I feel is the worst thing that happened to medicine and um, patients became customers. And it used to be, when I first first went into practice, I was in a small private practice um, outside of Boston with two other doctors. And patients came and you gave them your best advice and you came up with a treatment plan and uh, there was nowhere else to go. And so you really tried to do your best but now patients will shop around from doctor to doctor to doctor until somebody will tell them what they want to hear or give them the medication that Dr. Google told, told them they should have. So when patients come in, they've already researched everything on Google and they have in the back of their head what their treatment should be. If you don't align with that, your press gainy scores fall. And so you have to walk that line to be in the way that the way that I found success is sticking to my guns, what I think is best medically, um, trying to be communicative and kind. And unfortunately, it takes me a lot more time because I have to explain to patients uh, why we're doing things the way we're doing it. It's the, the days are gone that you can say, take this pill, don't ask any questions. You know, it takes a lot more time to educate patients than it does yeah. just to write a prescription and send them on their way. You're now living in Albuquerque, New Mexico with your wife, Lisa, who I might add is an advocate for cancer patients. What was it that made you decide to settle there? We had come out here on vacation. We came to Santa Fe on vacation. 
and we just fell in love with New Mexico. And uh, we decided that we were going to have to travel to see our kids anyway. We might as well travel from someplace warm. Tell me about your life in Albuquerque. What does your work entail? What's home life like? And how do you spend your time? Yeah. So, I mean, Albuquerque really is. I mean, you've lived out here uh, in the West. Yep. And uh, we love to hike and we love the outdoors. And um, Albuquerque's very geared towards that. Um, we can hike 12 months a year and there's great skiing close by. Um, I'm working now at an urgent care for Presbyterian Health Group, which is the largest medical provider in New Mexico. And um, it's become quite a challenge on a day-to-day basis. If you separate out COVID, because I would like to talk about COVID here in a minute, what's been your experience delivering health care in New Mexico compared to other places you practiced? It's very frustrating. Delivery of healthcare in New Mexico is uh, less than ideal. There's a very big shortage of primary care providers. Um, there's a shortage of specialist care. Patients have to travel great distances to get medical care. Patients, they have to drive four, five hours to get their chemotherapy. Uh, everything is so spread out and there's a lot of poverty and healthcare is tough. And, you know, I think our biggest need is is primary care. And what we've seen is that Albuquerque crime rate is going up in Albuquerque. And because of the low income, the schools aren't wonderful. And primary care doctors move here. They have families and they leave because uh, they don't want to send their kids to school here. So patients can't get primary care. They come in to see us. And over and over again, I hear... You know, I've had five doctors in the last six years. You know, I have them for nine months and they leave. And um, so they're ha really having a hard time keeping anybody, especially in primary care, pediatrics, OBGYN, all those kind of basic medical care areas where people really need to have, you know, services because they end up with just going without, they can't get services. You know, I was just looking at the New York Times COVID heat map. What are you seeing as far as COVID activity in your area now? Me personally, I'm seeing a dishearteningly large number of people who are coming in with COVID who are unvaccinated. And in the beginning, New Mexico was doing a good job with vaccination. And I think it plateaued lower in vaccination numbers than they were hoping it would. And um, I'm having that conversation with patients probably 10 to 15 times a day. Why have you chosen not to get vaccinated? And there's, you know, just a huge spectrum of reasons, religious reasons, political reasons, just general being uneducated about vaccine, etc. And I've been falling back on a phrase with patients a lot lately, and my the phrase that I'm using a lot is that because a lot of patients are coming in, they're saying people are vaccinated and they're still getting COVID. And I tell them that's true. The COVID vaccine is not 100% guaranteed that you won't get COVID, but it's about a 99.3% chance that you won't die on a ventilator at UNM. 
and I think people don't look at it that way. So th there's a lot of there's there's it's just going to be an ongoing process of education for people about COVID and vaccinations, etc. But we are seeing our numbers going up. Our ICUs are filling up. Um, we had a couple of days last week where they had 20 hour waits in the emergency department here. So um, I'm, I'm afraid it's going to get a lot worse again. And all of the hospitals and the bigger agencies here have now put into place the um, mandatory vaccination for employees since the Pfizer vaccine got FDA approval. And we're having nurses that are leaving. Interestingly, they're all male nurses that have left. They're all they're going to go to Texas. They're going to go someplace else and try and work where they don't require vaccination. So, we're, you know, the healthcare industry we're we're fighting that battle is just like everybody else's. talk a little more about you, especially since you're a doctor. You've also been a patient for the last few years. Correct. Will you share some of that with us? Sure. You know how people talk about when you get older that those health problems are going to, it's not a matter of if you're going to get sick, it's a matter of when. And I've been blessed with extremely good health my entire life. I mean, I've never had a health problem. And then um, I caught a really bad cold and uh, ended up with a viral infection and a, it's called a viral cardiomyopathy. And basically it means that if we did an echocardiogram on you today, I'm hoping it would show that your heart pumps at 70 to 80% efficiency, but mine only pumps at about 30 percent and uh, that was from a viral infection and um, I had been having a little chest pain and some different symptoms and finally went in to see my doctor and he had ordered an echocardiogram and it was at the clinic where I worked and I went in for the echocardiogram and the, the technician did my echocardiogram and she got this little bit of a panicked look on her face and she went out of the room. She was said, I'll be back. And she came back in with a radiologist and he said, there's something going on. I mean, you've got your ejection fraction, which is the percentage of blood that your heart is able to pump um, is very low. We don't know why. And my coronary arteries were clean, which was great news, which means I'll probably never have a heart attack. Um, but my function was very low. So um, I met with a cardiologist and got on some medication and came out here and followed up here. Had an appointment with my cardiologist last year and he was worried about the extra heartbeats that I was having and he was worried that that was a bad prognostic factor for my future. And he wanted to start talking about heart transplant. And Lisa and I had to have an honest conversation that a heart transplant just isn't something I'm interested in. I, I would not go down that route. So um, I had some follow-up tests and things had stabilized and things are doing well. And uh, as long as they keep going the way they're going, I'm doing okay. But interestingly, when COVID came along and I talked to my cardiologist, he, he said, uh, <laughs> you can't get COVID. He said, COVID will probably kill you. So then Lisa and I had to have that discussion about, you know, right. do I continue to work or not continue to work? And I thought about it. Um, 
but medicine's all I've done. And um, there's so many people that just need uh, medical care here in New Mexico. And so before the vaccine was available, I just tried to be very careful about full PPE and mask and all my gear and decided that this is just what I was going to do and the chips will fall as they may. I was extremely grateful when the vaccine was available and I was able to get vaccinated. It put us at ease a little bit. You know, it just um, took a little bit of that weight off about going to work every day. It's hard, you know, we've all been at that point in our lives where we have to see ourselves as somebody who's not immortal and that we're all vulnerable. And that was a very, very hard transition for me to make. Was it hard going from doctor to patient and being on the receiving end of the healthcare system? Um, <laughs> it was because when I would interface with the medical system from the patient side, I could feel patients' frustration. And it's interesting because when you're on the physician side, when you write orders and you want things to happen, it's almost like magical thinking. You think this is all just going to happen for this patient and they're going to go and they're going to get their x-rays and their treatments and they're going to see their... Oh no, it just it does not work that way. Schedulers and people who, you know, manana is the big attitude out here. And uh, do you remember the movie, The Doctor? Yes. It, um, I, I gained a new appreciation for that movie um, because when I deal with my patients, I understand that things aren't going to go the way that we want it to go. I mean, it's just uh, a product of a system that's inefficient and, um, and a lot of people don't really care. I, I understand how it is now, and I, I think it, it brought more grace to my uh, interactions with my patients because I understand that it's it's not easy. It's not easy to be a patient. It's scary. And I understand that it's scarier for them because they don't understand. Sometimes it's scarier for me because I do understand. You know, it's, it's hard for me when I go in for a procedure and I look at the x-ray of the ultrasound and the tech doesn't. I don't tell people that I'm a physician when I go. And I, I watch the echocardiogram and I know what it means. And uh, so it's some ways it's harder in some ways it's easier. But we all just do the best we can with what we have to work with, I guess. It's generally agreed that the healthcare system is complicated and expensive. What do you think people need to know about the lives of doctors and nurses delivering care right now? That we're doing the best we can. With with the with the twenty hour waits in the emergency department, a lot of those patients get bumped down to us in the urgent care, and a lot of them aren't urgent care patients; they're really emergency room patients. And they're coming in, and the business side of the healthcare organization is wanting profits and high efficiency, and so two or three of us will be seeing, you know, ninety patients in a twelve hour shift. And we don't get lunch and we don't get breaks. We just work right through the day. And it's it's difficult when you're an hour and a half behind and you've got two or three sick patients and one waiting for an ambulance. And it's it's kind of hard to put that smile on when you walk into the next room when 
you know, it feels like the whole world is going to shit. <laughs> right. It's, it's just difficult sometimes. Um, but you, you have to, you have to do it. And, um, and you try to tell your patients, I'm sorry that I'm running behind. You have my attention now. You're my, you know, you have my full attention. Um, but patients are frustrated. The nurses are frustrated. You know, it's people are doing the best they can. Um, it's just a difficult situation, but yeah, it, we're doing the best we can. And I, I really think that when I work, I try to bring that attitude to the shift that I work that it's going to be a good day. We're going to help some people. Some things aren't going to go well. Uh, we're going to try and take care of each other. And every patient deserves some kindness and some patience and um, we'll fall short. Um, we'll get back up and we'll come back tomorrow and try to do it better the next time. I want to thank Mike Trobeck for joining us today, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Our podcast is produced by Eclectic River Daydream. You've heard from us, and now we want to hear from you. Leave us feedback on our website at storypod.us or on Facebook at American Storyteller. Until the next time you hear from me, I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller. Storyteller.